Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio episode number 210. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are here this week to discuss the long-awaited Disenchanted. Yes, 15 years since the original Enchanted came out. It just celebrated its 15-year anniversary. It's odd that you would have waited this long for a sequel. This movie was in development hell for a very long time. They started discussing a sequel back in 2010. Amy Adams signed on and was supposed to shoot a sequel in 2017, so already that's a long time to wait. But to think that, you know, let's just say back to where the rumors started, 12 years you waited for a sequel. Like, the first one is such a hit and it's so loved that on the surface it sounds weird to say we waited this long, but at the same time, the first one was such a perfect story that I feel like you really had to wait for the right sequel to come along. I think it's just, it's it's really hard to develop sequels to perfect films, right? Without them seeming like you just forced a sequel to make money. And I think that's also part of the challenge with this one is because what makes Enchanted so successful is that it is a straight parody. Right. So I don't think that they wrote with the intention of leaving it open-ended so that they could do a sequel. And I also think it's very telling that... This film wasn't even released on Disney Plus until recently. I, I yeah. kind of thought of this one as a cult classic for a while because since it wasn't your traditional fairy tale, I feel like it wasn't as popular during its initial run and people discovered it over the years. Um, but then they still didn't put it out on Disney Plus. So... You know, for a film that is so popular, why wouldn't you have had it there when it wasn't contractually anywhere else? I don't think like, you know, it wasn't on Netflix. It wasn't on Hulu. Um, Maybe it had a couple of airings on Freeform and things like that. But that's still under the Disney banner. Yeah, like Nightmare Before Christmas is, has been airing on Freeform since September and they didn't pull it off of Disney Plus. Right. So that's what I'm saying. It's like, why did you bury it? Why didn't you have it accessible for all of these years, yet you thought enough of it to do a sequel and you recognized its popularity? It, it Something's not adding up. Something isn't adding up. But with all of that being said, there's a lot that we're going to discuss today. Did we want the sequel? Did we need the sequel? Did the change in director change the dynamic of the franchise, so to speak. And I, I kind of hate to call it that because it's only two films. But that, on top of many other things, is what we are here to discuss today. This episode is sponsored by the Hidden Mickey Supply Co. Products include Disney and Pixar-inspired 3D straw charms, ornaments, and personalized photo nightlights. Listeners of Monoreal can get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. Visit Hidden Mickey Supply Co. on Instagram and Etsy to stay up to date on all of the new releases, especially all of the new holiday releases. Start getting your shopping done now. Ten years after our original story, Robert and Giselle have another baby, Sophia, and Morgan begins to drift away from them, so they decide to leave Manhattan to move to the suburbs of of, uh, Monrovia. No, sorry, Monroeville. I wanted to call it Monrovia. It's Monroeville, much to the dismay of Morgan. After a disastrous first day, they meet Malvina Monroe, head of the town council. The next morning, Nancy and Edward, now king and queen of 
of Andalasia arrive through a portal to give a gift to their goddaughter Sophia, which is a wishing wand. Later that day, Giselle learns of Monroe Fest and offers Malvina her services to help plan the event. We also learn that her son Tyson has been crowned as the prince of the event for multiple years. So after a bad day of school, Morgan voices her displeasure with her new home and school, which drives Giselle to host a bake sale at school the next day to campaign for Morgan to be the princess of Monroe Fest, further driving a wedge between the two. When Morgan arrives home late that night after going to New York City instead of school, she argues with her parents and reminds Giselle that she is not her mother, but in fact her stepmother. Pip arrives to visit Giselle, who uses the wishing wand to give her back her fairy tale life, and upon waking up the next morning, she sees that life in Monroeville is full of magic, and it is more like life in Andalasia, including a happier Morgan and Robert. We also see that Malvina is now the queen of uh, Monrolasia, which is the new name of the town, um, who has her eye for the wishing wand while Giselle slowly starts to transform into a wicked stepmother. After, her after using her magic mirror to see that Giselle is the most powerful person in Monrolasia, she sends her assistants, uh, Rosaline and Ruby, to steal the wand. Giselle soon realizes that her wish is turning her into a wicked stepmother, and Pip tells her that Malvina is also evil, and Giselle needs to unwish it all while Pip turns into a cat, because as they point out, wicked stepmothers don't have chipmunks as sidekicks, they have cats. Giselle is told by the scroll that came with the wand that she must unwish her wish by midnight, or else the wish will remain permanent. But she sees that the wand is missing, so she sets off to find more magic to help fix the mess. When Malvina gets possession of the wand, she learns that she cannot use it as she is not a true daughter of Andalasia. Giselle, meanwhile, punishes Morgan with chores to keep her from attending the festival, which she intended to go to with Tyson, because now Giselle is flashing back between herself and and her wicked form. It's a back and forth that happens throughout most of the film. When Giselle snaps out of her wickedness temporarily, she sends Morgan to Andalasia to find help. When she turns wicked again, she devises a plan with Pip, who is now turning evil himself, to overtake Malvina as the queen. When Malvina refuses to hand Monrolasia to, uh, to Giselle, they each plan to dispose of the next. In Andalasia, Morgan tells Edward and Nancy that Giselle sent her there for help, and they realize that Giselle is pulling all of the magic of Andalasia out to complete her wish and that her memory tree will snap her out of her wickedness. However, when they find the memory tree, they see that it is dead. As Morgan reminisces of her memories with Giselle, they see that she is bringing the memories back as well as the tree. Nancy and Morgan return to Monrolasia to help end the wish while Edward stays behind to protect Andalasia. Morgan takes her own memory tree to help revive Giselle as well, hoping that those memories will help snap her out of it. Pip, meanwhile, steals the wand back and returns it to Giselle, who wishes to become the queen. She and Malvina battle each other with magic. Meanwhile, Andalasia begins to break through into Monroe-Lasia. 
Robert finds Nancy, who tells him that Giselle is under a curse, so he finds Morgan so that they can work together to save Giselle. Morgan gives Giselle her memory tree, which breaks the curse and saves Giselle. When Giselle attempts to use the wand to save Andalasia because it is now dying to produce this Monrolasia, Malvina stops her by taking Morgan captive and refusing to release her until after midnight, despite the fact that doing so will kill Andalasia as well as Giselle. Malvina breaks the wand in half and takes her place on her throne while Morgan is set free as the clock starts, uh, starts to strike 12. Giselle tells Morgan that she is in fact her daughter and that she is a daughter of Andalasia. Robert and Tyson go to the clock tower and jam the clock to prevent the stroke of midnight from actually occurring while Morgan wishes to be home with her mom, restoring order and saving Andalasia and turning uh, Monroeville back to normal, where they are all going to try to now live a normal life. This is a very, on paper, a very convoluted plot. Right, but it didn't feel that way to me. No, the, that's the thing. Like, as we were watching this the first time, and we'll start breaking it down in, in a moment here, it didn't seem like it was that hard to follow. But as I'm reading this plot out, there was a moment where I was like, what the hell am I talking about? Because it just doesn't follow as difficult as it reads. But I think that's because there's a lot of flashing back and forth in the film that it's just so hard to like convey that as you're reading it out loud. I agree, because even as you were sitting here reading it, I was like, oh, this is... This is kind of long, like it's a long plot, but the movie certainly didn't feel like it was dragging. Right. This is the longest plot I've had to read in quite some time. Probably the longest we've ever done. Like, normally, this is where we would be like, all right, screw it. We'll, we'll just do it linear, like when it's a Marvel and it's very convoluted. But yeah, I, I think that's fair to say this has as much back and forth as a Marvel film. and there, But it's half as long as yeah. some of the Marvel films. That's the crazy thing. Okay, let's let's get into it here. Um, I actually love the start of the film. The intro as a storybook um, that Pip is reading to his kids. Um, I like that we're back in Andalasia. I like that it's familiar. Um, and I like the fact that it, it starts off very tongue-in-cheek because he reads them the story of Enchanted and goes, well, you know, there's more to the story than that. And they go, but there's no such thing after Happily Ever After. It's just Happily Ever After. So the tongue-in-cheek from the original immediately carries on in the first two minutes of this film. I completely agree. I think this was the most obvious start to this film, but it doesn't feel contrived in any way. I thought it was really nice to see more of Andalasia because as the opening credits start to roll, you know, they're doing almost like a a drone shot, if you will, yes. and it's a flyover. So I like that we got to see more of the kingdom, but I wish we had been able to see a little bit more of the detail because without getting too far ahead, we're going to see all of this fall. So yes. I think it would have been nice to see, to have some more of an attachment to it other than, well, you know, this is where Giselle was from and where she met Edward and he fought an ogre. Um, I completely agree though. Pip narrating is such an amazing lead in. Um, and it's hilarious to hear him sing true love's kiss as he's getting to that part in their story. Um, but I, I, I also think this was a really natural 
way to get into the film, aside from him reading his kids the story, um, this is more of the modern fairy tales that Disney are doing where they're questioning the happy, happily ever after. And maybe that feels a bit tropey now because they are doing so many sequels. But I like that they call it out here where Pip's kid says, well, you get married and then that's it. So I think that is a very natural thing to happen um, or to want to explore when you're looking at, well, what is their day to day like now? They're not in a kingdom. They're not, you know, they're not living in a castle. It's not like when Cinderella went off with the prince after the shoe got put on. Yeah. So what happens now in their day to day? You know, you're right. It's getting tropey. It really is kind of getting tropey. Um with the like the counterculture version of these happily ever afters and now we're starting to question all of it like frankly i i wish that we would just go and go back to having a happily ever after like that is kind of the charm of a lot of those early disney films and i understand that like the movie going audience is different now but i think sometimes when you sit to watch a disney film you're watching it because you just want your escape and you just want your happily ever after. It's the same reason why we watch Hallmark Christmas films. Most of them are inherently horrible, but you watch them because you're getting what you want at the end of it. You know what I'm saying? They're predictable and they're fun. But in this case, I think it works doing the, but wait a minute, there, there's no such thing as happily ever after because you're doing it in a form that's a spoof of a spoof. Right, it does serve the parody element, but I do, yeah, I agree. Um, you know, I think for a while we started questioning, like, you know, all of these princessy movies. Yeah. Because, you know, there was that meme that always circulated, like, Disney gave me un unrealistic expectations of what love is really like. So... You know, that found its way to the mainstream when you started doing these sequels. They started questioning what happens after, you know, your fairy tale ending. Um, but I agree with you now, I especially now with everything else going on in the world that's crazy. I think you do sort of crave that fairy tale ending because it does bring order to the chaos. And I think that really applies especially to our generation and that's why things like comfort tv and rewatching the shows that you grew up on and the movies that you grew up on is such a prevalent thing with our generation now it's not just the nostalgia it's because you want that comfort when everything else seems like it's falling apart but that does sort of make me sad in a way because i feel like we get farther and farther away from Walt Disney's storytelling because he wanted that same kind of order and the perfect endings. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens now because we know that they're just going to keep doing sequels and remakes if they do sort of start to swing the pendulum back the other way and, you know, do these movies that tie up in a neat little bow at the end of it. And they go back to the fairy tale endings, well, in other words. Much like the original Enchanted did. And I'll say this and then we'll move on because otherwise we're never going to get through this review. Um, as you pointed out earlier, it seems like this sat in development hell because when they wrote the original, it's not like they wrote it for the purpose of making a sequel. 
The thing is, look at how good the films can be when they don't try to make these tentpole franchise films. Disney now, when it comes to any movie, they're writing it with the expectation that if it's a hit, we're going to make a sequel, and then we're going to make another, and then we're going to make another, and then we're going to take a good thing and beat it to death like Toy Story. I wish that they would just do one-offs and be done and tell us a new story. Everything that they're doing, they are doing with the purpose of making trilogies out of them. And the, and the, the, I think that, by and large, the storytelling is just not quite as good because they're, they're not putting everything into one thing. They're putting a lot into one thing and holding back for the next. You just hit the nail on the head of what makes the first one so successful. Aside from the fact that it's wildly funny, and I remember when we reviewed it, even though that was way back when, within the first 10 episodes of Monoreal Radio, we spent a lot of time talking on about how perfect it was that Giselle landed in New York City. Of all places, it is the perfect setting for the fish out of water. Um, but to your point... That is the brilliance of the first one is that they figured out a way to sort of do a sequel slash remake without having to blatantly do one in the form of a parody. Um, and I think that you lose. I, I don't want to get too far ahead and spoil my full review, but I think you lose a lot of the parody elements here because we are just continuing i will say that i think a move to the suburbs was a great natural progression in this story i think it addresses what's gone on during the 15 year time jump since the first one i think that to play that against morgan's teenage angst yes. was a really smart choice that all felt very natural the only thing that i don't like is that we completely lose giselle's dress shop now, I understand that she's a new mom. Um, obviously, she's busy. She's barely getting enough sleep. But part of her move to New York City and assimilating into Robert's life was that she had her own thing going on. Yes. Um, you know, and they did like the, the kids dresses and the kids birthday parties. And that was her thing and her way of making a life for herself. So, OK, I get it. You have a child now, uh, uh, besides Morgan. Right. You got this. You have a newborn. Yeah. Yes. Um, the only thing that alludes to that dress shop is that Giselle is overtired and she has a sketchbook on the floor while she's sleeping. So, you know, it gives us the impression she fell asleep while she was doodling something. And that's all we get. We don't find out what happens when they move. And I mean, you can assume that she's going to be a homemaker now, but it just would have been nice if they had even addressed it with a throwaway line of like, Giselle is the one pushing for this move to the suburbs. So even she was willing to give up her business to make this happen. Right. Or perhaps she's going to move her business with her to Monroeville. It could be anything, but they they just, to your point, they kind of just throw it away. And it was such a big yes. part of the conclusion and we just get rid of it. But I love that in spite of it all, Giselle is still a princess. I At first, upon first viewing, I didn't know if I liked that very much because she got angry. And she was so happy to get angry in the first film that she was a princess but was still 
like acclimating into New York life and she was becoming like I hate to say it she's coming kind of becoming a regular person. We've completely ditched that and now she's back into breaking out in song at random and being completely socially awkward and inappropriate at times and I thought that that was going to wear thin on me but it doesn't at all and it works actually in driving this rift between her and Morgan even further. Yeah, I think they struck a really good balance there of being able to carry the princess through line without dumbing Giselle down too much because you still see those elements of she wants to sing and she's talking to the animals. Um, And I feel like I'm glad that they didn't completely bury it because you could totally make the argument that especially after 15 years in New York of all places, that it was impossible to harden her princess mentality and her sunny outlook on life right so we do the ricky and lucy thing and we're moving upstate now is it upstate or is it jersey they don't ever say monroeville sounds like new jersey i i would swear there is either a monroe or monroeville in new jersey but but yeah it does the drive sort of looks like they're going up the hudson yeah but in any case we're, we're skipping town we're going to the suburbs and we meet Malvina Monroe. Here's the thing with Malvina. And I, I we didn't get a lot of trailers for this film, but I thought that she was an evil queen that had control of this town almost like in a Scarlet Witch sort of way, and that she was luring Giselle in. When that turned out to not be the case, and she was just an overbearing PTA mom on the town council... She she has the last name of Monroe, so obviously her family's got roots in the town, but they don't flesh it out, even the way that they kind of fleshed it out in Hocus Pocus 2. Right. You know what I'm saying? So that really seemed like a letdown and a miss. I don't know, though, because would it have felt like too much of a retread if she had a score to settle with Giselle and she came through from Andalasia and was trying to pull her back down. Because you're right. I do agree with you. That is what the few trailers that we got set up. I thought that she was just luring Giselle in because she needed more magic. And I thought that that was going to be the premise. And that that's how Giselle was going to end up becoming like this wicked alter ego. And that it was something that was going to be completely outside of her control. I and, did... and then when you victimize her like that, she becomes a more sympathetic character, much like she was in the first. I did too. But being that that's not the path that they took, I think that they found a really good balance of the double villains. I think that they did too. And I think that in this case, what works with what they did do with Giselle's character is and, and again, we're getting ahead of ourselves here, but it's it's relevant to the conversation we're having right now. Giselle, at the end of the day, is just a princess. She's almost childish, and she just wants to make her wish for this perfect life, and she's reaping what she sows. Yes. So you don't lose any of the sympathy towards her because what she did was innocent enough without thinking of the consequences because she's never had to think about consequences before. She went from living in Andalasia to living in the penthouse with a wealthy attorney. And, you know, she's 
She never really had to deal with consequences before. It's probably the first time in her life that she has. So I think it still works for where they went with this. That's a really good point because I think that you could make the argument that Giselle coming from Andalasia, the biggest thing that she had to worry about besides ogres would have been be careful what you wish for, be careful what you do with magic. But because she ended up in New York and she was saved immediately by Robert and Morgan, you're right. She really never has had to deal with a consequence before. So she really wouldn't even be thinking on those terms. And what she is thinking about is I've always been able to have a positive outlook and fix everything and everybody. But she's really struggling with that because she thought the move was just going to magically make that happen. And you're getting all of this resistance from Morgan, which I feel like they handled really well. Because we've seen the teen angst thing. We've seen the what happens when I have to reset my life and start a new school and I don't want to move and I want my old friends. It's been done before, but what they do really effectively is that you have all this pushback and you have all this sarcasm from Morgan, which also very funny um, how they're weaving in that humor because Giselle still doesn't understand sarcasm. All she knows is this sweet, lovable child that she met that found her on a billboard and now she's got to deal with the teen years and ripping Morgan from her roots and replanting her. Um, So you get that pushback and sarcasm from Morgan. um, And just when you think it's about to be too much, they do the reveal of her new room. And Robert makes the point of saying, you know, everything else is in shambles, but your mom wanted to make sure that this was done for you so that you would have your space all set up. And you think that Giselle has even won Morgan over in this moment, but then she turns on the light and the fire sparks and now everything is ruined. So I think it was a really good way to take a step forward and then two back as far as her relationship with Morgan goes. Right. I did have to laugh that they wanted her to continue sleeping in the bedroom with them until, quote unquote, the smoke cleared. I don't know how long that smoke lingered in that house to the point where any of you could have been in that house if it was that dangerous. Right. But funny nonetheless. um, And they set the alarm for five o'clock in the morning. So the alarm wakes them up right at the same time that the baby starts crying, which I thought was interesting because Morgan makes the case. She makes the statement that like, hey, it's still yesterday outside. It's still last night outside. Why are we getting up this early? And you're right. The fact that they're getting up at 5 a.m., I know Robert has to commute now, but to me, it should have been one or the other. Either they're getting up at 5 a.m. because now he's got to get used to being a commuter, or the baby wakes them before the alarm, and that just gives more levity to the fact that they are completely drained new parents. I also don't buy for a second that the animals don't wake Giselle, because you know, that's how it, they didn't have alarms in Andalasia, but now, especially that you've removed her from the city where she managed to make friends with mice and cockroaches. Now she has all of these other animals because they're in the suburbs. You can't tell me the birds don't tap on the window to wake her in the morning. Yeah, it, it was, it was a little odd, but we get the return of Nancy and Edward 
coming through that well that they have in the backyard, making a portal. I was brilliant. I was so happy. Well, yes, to have them come out of a well is brilliant. But I was so happy to see them because Edward is one of my favorite things about that original film. It doesn't matter how many times I see it. As soon as he comes on screen, no matter what he's doing, it just cracks me up. And he's doing it again here. I just wish we saw more of them because you get them for a few minutes in the beginning and then they're gone until a few minutes at the end. Yes. I mean, like I need to say it more Idina, please always. But I think because you have like, look at what she has done since the first enchanted. I mean, really that was her first movie. Um, it was the first thing that she did coming off of Broadway. And since then, you know, aside from the fact that she's been in Rent, the film, uh, there was this other little film she did called Frozen and Frozen 2. And she is arguably the biggest thing to come out of Enchanted. Maybe not as big as Amy Adams because she is an A-list actress, but certainly as far as the Disney community goes, she is the queen of this film. So I think because you had to showcase her more, unfortunately, Edward took the backseat in this case. Because aside from not having nearly enough screen time, and he, I mean, he's not the leading man anymore, right? He's not the one who needs to save the princess. Right. That's Robert's job now. Um, but I feel like he totally falls by the wayside and they certainly didn't utilize this character as effectively as they could have. What I like about their their entrance, though, and, and with this wishing wand is that they, they planted early that it has to be a daughter or a son of Andalasia to make the wand work. Right. Um, I like that they planted that early. I like that that obviously comes full circle later on because it could have just been a very easy throw a throwaway line but it's such an important line that you don't recognize until you've seen the movie a couple of times right and it's just really well done well i'm actually going to disagree there because the way that they set that up it sort of seems like sophia is the only one who can do anything about it or giselle Right. And eventually it all falls to Morgan. Here's another thing that I don't love, though. As far as not only do we lose Edward, but the little bit that we do get with him, he was so fascinated by everything in New York City. The littlest thing just blew his mind. So I don't really buy that he's like sort of looking down on their new life. You know, he's critiquing the house and you know, oh, you have to add a balcony so that you can say, like, that's all funny. But instead of not understanding, they do play with that a little bit when, you know, he tells Robert to take the sword and doesn't understand why he's not going to need one, to need one on his commute. Um, they didn't lean into that. They steered away from it. And instead, he's being very critical. And I just, I don't buy that from him at all. Well, he's a king now. You know, he's calling people peasants. Fair. And I think it's just a matter of being out of touch with reality because his reality is Andalasia, which is not reality at all. And I think that it works with Nancy as she's like trying to explain like what is and what is not appropriate. You know, it's like talking to a child that doesn't know any better. I wish that they had leaned into that much more because that would have been such a great opportunity for comedy when he's so out of touch with it. But, you know... 
or or maybe it's the other way around. Maybe Nancy has spent too much time in Angel in Andalasia and she's losing her grip on the real world. Yeah. You could have done a lot more with the two of them. Absolutely. What they did do well, though, in the next scene is the striking a chord with everybody that's ever been. Thank God I've never been one. You were the train commuters. Oh, that hurt my soul. How did it how did that feel watching that play out? Um, despite the fact that no train that goes into Manhattan is that nice where every seat has a table. That looked like a first class seat on an airplane. Are you kidding me? Um, nobody talks to each other like that. Even if they are telling him what he should be doing in proper commuter etiquette, no one talks in the morning unless you have like a, a group of friends that you're riding the train with. Um, yeah, it, it was like a horrible flashback. And that's even not just being removed from New York. I'm still two years removed from commuting because of the pandemic, but it still took, oh God, it sucked me right back down there. Did it punch you in the gut as much as hearing Morgan say to Giselle, you're just my stepmother? No, because I didn't buy that from her at all. That took me right out of it. I certainly buy that Morgan is having trouble adjusting. Um, and like I said, they they did a very good job of balancing that out by showing Morgan's appreciation of the room that Giselle made for her and the effort that Giselle is putting forth. But I don't buy this from Morgan who, Daddy, look, there's a princess on a billboard. Yes. We have to go help her. Yeah. The one who was championing Giselle the entire time, who was fascinated with her ripping down the curtains and making a dress and was not grossed out by the roaches cleaning her bathroom. Morgan was in her corner from day one. Yep. So I just don't, buy, and especially too, they did such a beautiful job of showing that Morgan does call her mom without making a big deal out of it, but they make a big deal out of it here. I just didn't buy it. It's, it's gut wrenching to hear because it means something different to Giselle than it means to other people. In, in reality, if somebody has a step parent and they go, well, that's my stepmother. It doesn't carry the same negativity per se that it would in a fairy tale world because in a fairy tale world, all stepmothers are wicked and evil. So you know for her it means something completely different. It is the worst insult possible, but it's hard hearing it from Morgan for all of the reasons that you just said. Now, something else that kind of happens that leads to this moment is Giselle being really over the top and really overbearing when it comes to Morgan. I'm a hundred percent okay with Giselle breaking into song and still being a princess, but there are some elements here in this in-between that kind of just seem like they're a little bit of a step back with the character. To the point you made earlier, Giselle operated a fashion line, and yet when she dresses... Morgan to go to school after all of her clothes are ruined. Yes. She puts her in the most hideous flower on flower apparel possible that even she would not have developed. It would have been funnier if she would have made her like a ball gown. Like, and that, because that would have been, I'm out of touch with reality, but I'm only doing the one thing that I know how to do. 
to fix the situation because that's it. Giselle is a fixer. Right. No, I totally agree. I mean, it's good for the visual comedy because you know Morgan doesn't want to wear this, but it's a total miss as far as what we know in this, call it a franchise, that Giselle makes the dresses and all she had to do, it could have been the easiest throwaway line. Oh, we're not using these curtains anymore because they're in the middle of remodeling. She right. could have picked old curtains and that also would have satisfied why the pattern was all crazy and weird. They could have been like curtains from the 80s or something and Giselle made a dress out of them. And it would have called back to the original film. Exactly. In a way that made sense. Um, okay, so we get past this whole thing with the stepmother and now Pip arrives and you don't really know why Pip arrives. Yeah. He kind of is just there. And now he look. and I know that there's been a lot made of this on social media. And I think for valid reason, he's a chipmunk in the first film, but now he's like a chipmunk squirrel hybrid. He's a chipmunk with a squirrel's tail. So there's an inconsistency in the look of the character that I don't quite understand. But he arrives out of the wishing well, more or less because he's squeaking and chirping, but only Giselle understands him. He's the one that calls attention to the wishing wand, and when she goes, oh, that's right, the wishing wand, he then tries to tell her not to use it. So why are you there? Why do you look like a hybrid? Why did you bring up the wishing wand and then immediately tell her not to use the wishing wand? It's not like he told... like. If he told her to use to use it and regretted it later, I'd be like, yeah, makes sense. But he tells her about it and then t- tries to convince her not to use it right away. It, there's just a very bizarre disconnect here that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Yeah, I can answer a couple of those questions. I mean, he, he could have snuck in on Edward's cape. It would have been that simple. And then he's there the whole time observing what's going on. Right. And then plants this idea of, oh, well, you have the wand. You know, if things aren't going well, why don't you just fix it the same way you did in Andalasia? You have this magic now. Um, If you wanted to err on the side of Pip is sort of being her wingman in this regard. Otherwise, you could have had him on the other end of the spectrum of, well, look at what happened when um, Edward's mother. The played by Susan Sarandon in the first film. Yes, Queen Nerissa. She couldn't get in to Manhattan, so she was acting through Nathaniel. Right. So you could have had Pip, because Pip was really the one trying to thwart Nathaniel the entire time. You could have had this cautionary tale come through him. Um, As far as the inconsistency, though, with the animation, that is very upsetting because this is made, I mean, I'm sure it's all done on a computer, but this is made to look like 2D hand-drawn. So you would never have that kind of inconsistency in a drawing. Yet we do. And it's maddening when you look through the lengths that Eric Goldberg and the animators just went through to make the Mickey in a Minute short and recreate everything. But nobody bothered to look at the continuity. I mean, maybe that comes from switching directors. Um, this We mentioned it before, um, but now's a good time to bring it up. Uh, the first one, Enchanted, was directed by Kevin Lima, who we know directed a goofy movie. He's brilliant. Need I say more? Um, and Adam Shankman 
directed this one and he's done a whole bunch of musicals you know he does have that on his resume he did hairspray uh he he did a bunch of episodes of glee take that as you will um nothing that you've said about him at this point has impressed me i'm just being honest he's done a couple of rom-coms he's done a walk to remember and he's done a wedding planner both of which i really really like um so he's handled that material really well yeah sure um but i'm wondering if because he doesn't have that animation resume, if that was something that just sort of it was a complete miss for him. But like nobody said, hey, this character looks completely different. It's not even the same animal. Right. That's like taking Iago and making him into a macaw. Yeah, in the you know, in in the sequels of Return of Jafar and all that. But whatever. It's it's odd, it makes no sense, but we move on from here. I, I said it before. I like the fact that she makes this wish. I like the fact that she does so innocently. I like the fact that she does so not understanding the consequences that could come with it. And they did a good job of not making this feel like we were watching uh, WandaVision. Because it was so... You could have very easily, like, tr- not even told the line, but tripped over the line where this just felt like it was a whimsical version of WandaVision. You really don't connect the two at all. No, I hadn't even thought of anything like that. The only thing that I might have compared it to, um, and I don't mean this in a negative way, is the um, Lily James Cinderella, the most recent retelling of Cinderella um, live action remake. I think that was 2015. Yeah. Um, The only reason I'm making that comparison is because the house set has a very familiar feel to it. I think it's the color palette. I think it's the way that they designed it to look like that high-end cottage. Um, But I love it. I love what they did to this set. What reminds me of Cinderella is what I like about it. So that's where it doesn't feel like a cheap ripoff at all. And I love now that we are getting Robert as Edward. You basically have (laughs) Robert is in the Edward role and it's spectacular. Um, and like you said, I love the set. I think that the set, I think that the way they that they dressed it was spectacular. It felt like if Andalasia did come into reality, this is what it would feel like. Right. And we are going to get into the music and talk about that later. But, you know, their first morning, you've got all the appliances up and singing. Uh, it reminded me very much of the Muppets or like a veggie fruit fruit from Kitchen Cabaret. Yeah. Um, and then you see the complete reversal Um, not just as Robert being like Edward, but he and Morgan join in on the sing and dance. I thought that was really funny. I thought it was really well done. Yeah. And I like that they call back to this clock tower because when they pull into town the first time, Robert looks at the clock tower and goes, oh, look at that. And he just points at a clock tower. Yeah. It was just like, what the hell are you, like, why is that so intriguing to you? But I like the fact that now when it chimes the first time and you see Giselle's eyes turn yellow and she starts flashing back and forth. And we'll talk about the cast in a little while, but like kudos to Amy Adams because as she flashes between good and evil, she just nails it. Like it's very subtle at first and then it gets more and more heavy handed as the film goes on. She does an incredible job with it. And that's, that's kudos. This is why I want to say this now. I'm not going to say, oh, Giselle, 
Giselle's a character. Amy Adams is is the actress that has crafted this character, and kudos to her for pulling it off. No, you can tell she had a lot of fun with it, but she did such an amazing job. It was like turning a switch on and off. It was really seamless. Um, here's where this starts to lose me again, because you're talking about the callback with the clock, but now we go dress shopping for the Monroe, well, Monroe Fest. Monroe, I thought Monroe Fest was the real name. Now it's going to be like a, another ball or something. I, I don't know. Monroe Fest was Malvina's event, but I thought in this new Andalasia world, it was called something else. Well, I, th- I thought it was all the same, but I, I may have just not been paying close enough attention. Or that might be on me. I don't know. But regardless, but this is why. It's right. because this is so distracting. They are dress shopping and Giselle is not dress designing so that Morgan has something to wear. That absolutely makes zero sense. And then there's just too much back and forth to the market. Like, I know the song leads Giselle there, but Morgan is already there for chores. They buy the dress. They go back home. And now as Giselle is flipping back and forth and she she takes the dress out of the box, it's torn to shreds. And Morgan's like, okay, no problem. I'll have time to get all my chores done. I'm going to go to the market and then I'm going to come back and get ready. Why do we keep going back and forth like this? Yeah, we were already there. You were there once. Why are we going back again? And you didn't need to be there because Giselle could have just made that. I would have bought it more if, again, Giselle was designing the dresses and she made something that Morgan would never wear or that was too hideous and she was trying to destroy her just by virtue of designing a horrible dress. And now Morgan's got to fake it because she's good natured and she's going to pretend that she loves it and she'll wear it anyway. Yeah. I mean, I guess you had to eventually get to the point where Giselle forbids her from going at all. So you, it would contradict it too much had she made her the dress, but there, there's just a lot of missed opportunity here. And now instead of, again, this is where we're losing the parody because now we're just retreading Cinderella. And it would have been interesting when you have, Giselle talking to herself because she's there is a point later on in the film where she's arguing with herself her her natural side and her wicked side are going back and forth at each other if good-natured Giselle had designed a beautiful gown that wicked Giselle then destroyed and it would just confuse Morgan like why did you do this for me just to destroy it like are you really out there to hurt me and then that That just gives more with the back and forth between good and evil within Giselle where she's confused and not understanding what's going on either. Like there's so many ways that you could have played this out that you're right. It sort of feels like a miss. Pip turning into a cat though is great. It's perfection. I think that it's a great commentary because they're right. (laughs) They all have these cats. Um it's true. I mean, well, especially, but this is where, again, it feels less parody and more ripoff because Lucifer is Cinderella and Lucifer is one of the antagonists besides being um, Lady Tremaine's sidekick. Right. He does have a hand in being a huge obstacle for Jacques and Gus Gus. Right. And as I'm talking through it, I'm realizing that Pip is actually one of the few parody elements left because he's not an obstacle for anyone if anything he is still 
helping Giselle through this, whether it's, you know, he's not helping her evil side. He's trying to get her back on the right track. So I guess they did do a good job of taking an element we know from Cinderella and utilizing it here. Um, But the rest of it very much starts feeling like a retread because then you've got Melvina and the other two that are slowly descending into the ugly stepsisters. Right. And I like the subplot, though, with the wand, where she sends the two of them, and they are, I don't want to call them dimwits, but they're very much that atypical, clumsy sidekick. Uh, they're the comic relief, but like, but they work, though. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. They, they're not too over the top. They fit in this universe while also still kind of feeling like a parody without being too much of a trope. But I do like the subplot where they steal it and now Giselle and Pip need to steal it back. I think that what they're doing here works. It does for me, except for the scroll. I feel like that was a swing and a miss because, I mean, it does exactly what Nancy and Edward tell Giselle that it's going to if you need any help you just ask the scroll but that's really all it is I mean as much as you know and again we're going to talk about the cast as much as I love to see Alan Tudyk voice anything um I just feel like he serves no purpose because it's not like the scroll has any loyalty to the person who originally had the wand. It's yes. not like he's trying to get the wand back to Sophia because it's Sophia's wand, lest we forget. Yeah. Uh, he's not working against Malvina. It it just it didn't do anything. And and he doesn't really explain anything either. No, he's kind of just sitting there like, it's not gonna work. Have some candy. <laughs> like that's because he does sound just like King Candy. Yeah. It's the same voice. But I don't care. Like I'm not sitting here you know, going, well, you didn't change it. And no, I want that all the time. Wesselton. Yeah. yeah. And he's just like, you've taken me captive and I can't do anything. Here's <laughs> some candy. It's, it's just basically what it is the whole time. It, it's, it is sad because he is, he is within himself is becoming a Disney legend. Right. And he has given so much to Disney and you get a talent like that. Cause he's so wildly talented you get somebody like that and you just throw this useless character that just doesn't belong. No, I mean, really, like you said, legendary in his own right. Hey, hey, as much as I don't like Moana. But the real mark for me was when he played the Duke of Weaseltown in Frozen and then they made him the weasel in Zootopia. Yeah. Like he's totally in on the joke. He's a great sport and big old swing and a miss. Not utilizing your talent more here. The other thing that I think that they do very well here is that it's not as easy as, well, she made a wish and it's going to stay permanent if she can't unwish it before midnight. It's a consequence, but it's not enough of a consequence because it's like, okay, until the clock strikes 12, yeah. much like Cinderella, right? You know, like, okay, so we've been there, done that. The fact that you double down on the stakes by killing Andalasia. Yes, it's it's a really, really good subplot as well. I have that exact note that sucking the magic out of Andalasia is such a bigger conflict. And it, and it also, it pulls Nancy and Edward back in. So it really does 
tie everything together. Here's the thing that they never address, though, and maybe they didn't want to because it's a Disney film and it's supposed to be kind of lighthearted, even though you're going to kill this entire village of Andalasia and all the people that are in it that are from there originally. So you won't lose Nancy because she's not of Andalasian blood, but you're going to lose Edward. You're going to lose Giselle. Yep. What happens to Sophia? Yep. They never mention what's at stake there. And that's where... Because this is where the film really does start to fall apart for me. Like, as much as I like the idea of this memory tree, I feel like they don't do a whole bunch with it. So it would have been a lot more effective, especially because you get real Giselle back for a moment when she pushes Morgan down the well and says, you have to save this. Uh, I thought that that was such a great misdirect in the trailer because it really looks like she did it out of malice yeah but it it's that she knows morgan has to save them it would have been great for morgan to snap back and take more agency in i want to put my family back together my mom's not happy that's why we moved i want this to work just as much as she does and now i could lose my baby sister and my dad is off trying to slay a dragon or whatever he's doing it would have been a lot better if she realized in that moment like if they gave her the princess arc of i need to stand on my own two feet now and i'm gonna get this done myself the modern princess arc the anna and elsa not your yeah cinderella even ariel you know uh i think that would have been so much more effective especially i know you needed to get nancy back in there but I, I just don't love that she handed her the answer. And I, I don't feel like the memory tree was a great solution either. See, and I like the memory tree. I like that it's a thing that exists in Andalasia. And because Morgan can't have one, Giselle makes a paper one with photographs instead of it being a live living thing that has live living memories, much like a core memory, right? Mm -hmm. So I like the fact that she did that because I can see her doing this little arts and crafts project, but I could see Morgan being into it. So I like the fact that you're taking something that was in Andalasia. It was something that was done, I'm sure, as a very innocent thing in the real world, but it's not a wasted element. Like, you could have just easily wasted it, but that, that's, that's the thing. For as many things as they... Okay, for as many things as they waste in this film that they didn't carry over from the original film, very little that happens in this film gets wasted in its own film. Well, no, I'll totally give you that one because I, I do buy that they would have done this arts and crafts project. I do buy that Morgan would have been into it because, like I said, she was always in Giselle's corner. So that's all well and good, but the fact that this tree has so much power... And this was part of the answer and the solution. I feel like they never connected all of those dots. And I wish that that's what they had done more of. Especially because Sophie is the daughter of Andalasia, not Morgan. It would have been more effective if Morgan found her own power in Andalasia. And that's how she became a daughter. And that's how she was able to save this whole thing. I just feel like there's too much of a disconnect of, well, it's the memory tree. But then Morgan ends up using the wand and technically Morgan should have no authority to use the wand. That's where this all falls apart for me is there, there's too many talismans that are not, that are not working to solve anything. I think the thing is they had to give Morgan magic 
and because she's not a natural daughter of Andalasia, they had to figure out a way to do it. And I think that they're also leaning on this notion that, and I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to, you know, scoff at it. I think they're trying to lean a little too much into this notion that it's like family's not always blood. That I, I think that they tried leaning into it so much that they almost leaned into it too much so that they could push the story forward. I agree with that. And I, I do think that that is the message that they were trying to send. But I don't feel like Morgan ever believed it. That's my problem. She doesn't have an aha moment. Nancy tells her. Giselle tells her. But she doesn't. She she never has that connection of I need to, to connect myself to Andalasia. Fairy tale Morgan does. Real Morgan doesn't. That's the problem. Because remember, yes. it's too at this point, as soon as she makes that wish, it's the same actress, it's the same name, but technically it's two different people. Yeah. Because she's a fabricated version of Morgan. She's not the real version of Morgan. Nowhere yes. in any of this does the real Morgan come out right, and realize any of this. She's not flipping sides like Giselle is between Correct. good and evil. She is just this Andalasia version of of Morgan. You're right. It's not like she's flipping the angst on and off. So Morgan never realizes any of this. Fairy tale Morgan does. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and that's what you needed. You needed a baton pass between not just the animated Morgan, but yes, the the Andalasia version and the Monroeville Morgan. Malvina finally becoming a queen. This I do like. Yes. I, I thought that that was a very natural thing to do. Um, I felt that her control over the town, when she's on the town council and the way that that conveys over as the queen and the fact that now she recognizes that this is the other weird thing she recognizes because I think she even says the line specifically that I'm finally the queen so somewhere in your subconscious you recognize that there is a change but nobody other than her and Giselle recognize it everybody else just wakes up one morning and all of a sudden their existence is different. Now, Robert's slaying dragons. He doesn't recall what it was like being an attorney. Morgan is right. now Andalasia Morgan. She's Princess Morgan. You know, like she doesn't remember angsty Morgan. So why is it that Malvina can recall what life was like before and how much power she has now and how she's so reluctant to get rid of it because she finally has what she always wanted like this would have been a great opportunity to pepper in that either she was always a an evil queen or perhaps you pepper in the fact that she always wanted to be a queen and was so you know enthralled with the story of Giselle because it's conceivable that at this point now Giselle may have some moxie she may have done a little digging. She may have found out the real background of, of Giselle and that this was all a ploy and all a plant so that she could get what she wanted the whole time. The fact that none of this ever comes to fruition, yet she's she's self-aware, but but the rest of them aren't. Yes. it's There's just something here that's missing. No, you're absolutely right, because they established that the character's power-hungry from the jump. That's That's all really well done. 
But you're absolutely right because she was on to Giselle from the beginning and she thought that there was something strange and off about her and she felt threatened by her. That's why she was like, you can't have the bake sale unless you're part of a committee and she shuts her down. It was always there. And then once Giselle makes her wish and everything is flipped, it's just like, oh, I knew there was something up with you. Yeah. Um, Because even, and this is a character we haven't brought up at all yet, her son, um, he has a crush on Morgan in, let's let's call it the real world, in, in yeah. Monroeville. Yeah. Uh, so they have that interaction. They're setting it up. And then, you know, he really starts to court her once the wish is made. Um, but he doesn't question any of it. He just knows that his mother is, like, not the best person. And then once she does, you know, have her moment of, I'm finally queen, he teams up with Robert, who comes back from you know, slaying giants or whatever, whatever he was doing, because you totally buried that character too. Um, and he's like, all right, we have to stop her. So I, I like that they do try and save the day when they try to stop the clock. Um, I can even buy that they team up with very little explanation other than like, well, I'm a prince, I'm a king, let's go do this. Uh, but I like that they didn't have the men come in to save the day and that, you know, as clunky as it was that Morgan still had to figure it out and she was the one to, to actually remedy everything. Um, but yes, to your point, um, even her son doesn't really question anything. Right. Okay. Let's talk about how the movie concludes here because the clock is about to strike midnight and Malvina has taken Morgan hostage using her magic, which none of us see until she reveals it on her own. Right. And Giselle is faced with save Morgan and save Morgan, which means killing myself and Andalasia or let Morgan die. And Robert and Ty or Tyson, they go off to go jam the clock. Right. Okay. You're going to go jam the clock. But while she's jamming the clock, or while they're jamming the clock, I should say, Malvina just snaps the wand in half, throws it down, sits in her throne, and just releases Morgan before before midnight strikes. So it's just, it, it kind of doesn't make any sense that she would allow her to go before her plan was fulfilled. Mm. There, there's just something here that's amiss. What's worse for me is that, of course, they're going to be worried about losing Giselle, But Giselle is only focused on Morgan. And this isn't meant to sound like she doesn't love her as her own daughter. But she does have a biological daughter that is with, by the way, the three fairies from Sleeping Beauty. Yeah. Because they are credited as Flora Fauna and Meriwether, even though they're never introduced as such in Mm. Disenchanted. Um, Those are their names. Um you don't even have Giselle acknowledge her other daughter at this point or Robert. So this is where, again, if you're trying to send that message of family doesn't have to be blood and put all of the onus on Morgan to fix this, you can't lose the other daughter because what you did was you made her a plot device because all Sophia's purpose was was to get the wand as a gift yes that's it 
that's the only reason why she exists. Like this, I love that movie. that Nancy and Edward are the godparents, and that it shows that they're still close. And you know, after Giselle, for all intents and purposes, stole Robert from Nancy, it shows that they buried the hatchet. So that's all fine, but. It, it doesn't make sense to have this baby when the whole story is Giselle's relationship with Morgan. Correct. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, how do you feel about how the way the movie ends? Because we're going to get our happy ending. Giselle will have the... They're going to have everything unwished. Everything's going to go back to normal. The jamming of the clock, that's okay. That's fine. Um, how do you feel that Morgan and Robert can recall being on the other side of life, and obviously Giselle can, but then nobody else can? After Malvina was very self-aware when she was the queen, now back to normal in Monroeville... Some people remember, some people don't, but the person that remembered both sides of life now does not recall the other side. There's just something here that makes no sense, as as happy as you are to see everything go back to normal. Right. What I, I, I honestly, I hadn't even really considered that because my focus as far as the end goes was that Morgan wished to be at home with her mom. And you would think that as far as Morgan goes, that means that they're going to end up back in their New York City apartment. So... I like that they did sort of bring that full circle and and at least in that regard, Morgan did learn her lesson because she almost lost everything. And it does show that, you know, she is taking that olive branch and she is going to try and, and accept their new life. So I definitely appreciate how they tied that all up. And I'm glad that we get to see that Nancy and Edward are okay because you and I sort of skipped over that part, how, you know, we see this devastating sight that Edward had stayed behind in Andalasia and he's slipping away with it and Nancy is completely helpless to do anything about it because he's on the other side of this portal looking which glass now they're looking portal. through a waterfall thing I, I don't know it's so strange yeah I mean it's it's sad because she's helpless but at the same time it's like you you couldn't have done anything no because he goes with Andalasia He's going to be right. the same thing as Giselle. It doesn't matter where he is. Well, it would have been interesting, though, to see what would happen if, if Nancy jumped through. She's not a daughter. She doesn't have Andalasian blood. So right, she's just going to get... because Andalasia, She could go down with the ship. No, she's not, because Andalasia's getting pulled into Monroeville. It's getting pulled into Monrolasia. So, like, as she... As as the, as Monrolasia gets pulled in, so does she. So she jumps in. She's just getting sucked back out anyway. Right, but I'm saying... Show me that. Show me that you really love Edward. I see what you mean. Okay. Yeah, no, no, that makes sense. That makes sense. But they're nowhere near this. They're nowhere near the well, but they're by this portal mirror waterfall. I don't even know what it was. It's just thing that kind of popped up out of nowhere. Because now we're in a completely different set, but whatever it is what it well, is. Well, regardless, I'm glad that they they brought them back in for the end. And it, it was funny how they bought a plate. That that is just going to constantly replenish the food, and as Edward says, that's all it does. We're pretty sure. Yeah, we're pretty sure he's not. And 100%. then he's sort of back to normal because now you know there's a kid's bouncy house that's shaped like a castle, and he wants to go sword fight them. That was hysterical. I'm not dead. 
I'm not. I'm. I'm. I'm just walking away. I'm not dead. Like he didn't understand what the idea of like play fighting was. That was very much Monty Python dialogue ripped off. So I'm not going to let that one slide. But I do like that. You know, he he finds out Robert doesn't really need the sword, and he's like, "Oh, can I have it back?" Yeah. Uh, so you do get that old Edward. I just wish that there was more of it because channeling that through Robert this whole time, it it wasn't as funny. Because you because you forget about Robert. I mean, I think that they probably had Patrick Dempsey for like three days. He's in the film for so little of it that he becomes an afterthought. And it's also the approach because he's just sort of been looking for something to do. It's like, I have a job. I have to leave the house for eight hours of my day. So I'm going to go slay giants. It's not like he's got the same delusions of grandeur that Edward has in the first one, that he's going to take on anything. Edward believes his own hype. Robert doesn't. Well, let's talk about the characters because... Some characters are very much the same as they were in the be- in the first film. Some are very different now that we've gotten to the second film. Let's start with Amy Adams. She plays Giselle. She's our leading lady. Um, it it's sort of it's it's this interesting tug of war. Like I love the fact that she is still a princess. I said that at the top of the show, but there are just a few instances here where I think they dial the character back too much. But it's all is forgiven and forgotten when she starts going in and out of being the wicked stepmother. Right. So, like, she, you know what I think, you know what I think it is? I think in this case, I love Giselle in the first movie. In the second movie, I think that I like Amy Adams as an actress more than I like Giselle as a character, if that makes any sense. I agree. And I think a lot of that comes from what we've been talking about, that because this is a sequel you lost a lot of the parody from the first one and a lot of that came from Giselle's character and the whole fish out of water element um I'm just glad they got Amy Adams back for this I mean if if she wasn't down to do it I don't think that they would have bothered making a sequel but I think at this stage of her career Maybe not in her case, but I think any other actress, it would be questionable if they would come back for a Disney movie. So I'm happy that she didn't, you know, forget where she came from and that she was one of the ones championing doing another one. Because I remember when Jason Siegel had his sight set on her for Muppets, there was nobody else that he wanted and he had a heck of a time getting her to agree to it. Um, and I'm not sure why that was, Um But I'm just glad that after she's doing films like The Fighter and American Hustle and she's working with all these notable directors, she was in the new Batman for crying out loud. I mean, maybe that's not saying much, but um, I'm just glad they got her back and that she was a really good sport about it. And I do I, I like Giselle as a character much more in the first one, but I love the switching on and off of the good and evil here. I think that she nailed it. Patrick Dempsey is back playing Robert, and I said it before, him being Robert as Edward is very funny. Like, he handles the comedy really well, but he's very much a background character in this film. Yeah, and at the same time, because they gave that to him, Edward got edged out as a result. So 
to me, the double negative just didn't work there because it sort of it it ruined two really good characters. Um, but I agree with you. I think he was really funny. I like that he got to exercise the comedy a little bit more. And I have to confess, every time somebody said he was a lawyer, I would go, wait, I thought he was a doctor because I'm totally conflating this with McDreamy from Grey's Anatomy. Um, but I also love how much Patrick Dempsey loves Disney. Like his induction speech when when they were inducted in as Disney legends, um, to hear what it meant to him as a child and he was tearing up. Um, I, I like that he loves these movies and he loves his character. Gabriella Baldacchino plays Morgan. She is a recast. The original Morgan was Rachel Covey, and she has a cameo in the film, but she does not reprise her role because I think at this point she was just too old for it. I think so, yeah. Uh, but I was very impressed by Gabrielle ba- uh, Baldacchino. I thought her her voice was incredible. Uh, I love all the, the songs and the dancing from her. Um I thought she balanced the teen angst really well because I think that had the potential to get very annoying and it didn't. Um, I was really impressed with her. Well, there's a there's finesse with that, right? Because you have Morgan, who is such an endearing, sweet kid in the first one, that you have to toe the line to make, make her angsty yet not dislikable. And that's kind of a fine line to toe, but I think that she towed it very well. I would agree with you there. No, and I also think that she handled the relationship with Nancy very well because they have a whole history from when Nancy and Robert were dating and she kind of grew up with her. So they did a really good job of making it feel like there is a layered history between the two of them. Yes. Idina Menzel and James Marsden are back as Nancy and Edward. I said it before and I'll say it again. I wish that we had more of them. Um, I'm sure, especially with Idina Menzel, probably more so than James Marsden, and no no offense to him, I'm sure she was the tougher get at this point um, in terms of having her for multiple days on end. But I wish that we did have more of them because their characters are so good that they get pushed... I mean, they're secondary characters. They're they're almost background characters at this point. And then they come back for a few minutes at the end. And it's just this shame that you lost those characters and you lost that talent. See, I don't think that they lost Nancy at all. I think they actually developed the character even more. And I certainly think that had to do with what Idina has become since the first since Enchanted. Right. Um, I think they had to give her more dialogue. Obviously, you're going to give her a song. Um, I think that Jason Marsden really got the brunt of this. But I do disagree with you, though, that Idina was the tougher get because, I mean, they're all, the they got inducted as Disney Legends as a cast. Um, so I'm sure they all got a ton of money for, for signing on to this. But I think... I don't want to say Idina's getting more, but because of what she represents with Frozen, and now they're doing a documentary, um, Which Way to the Stage? Uh, You know, they're tracking her like they did Taylor Swift recording the album. They're going to follow her for a big performance, and, you know, you'll really get to learn more about her her Broadway background and some of the work that she did before she was with Disney. So I think that because she's doing more she's probably getting more from them well because ultimately she's more of an investment at this point than the rest of them are 
Exactly. No. And like I said, I don't know numbers. I, I'm not saying that she made more than anyone else, but I kind of feel like they're making her work for it a little bit more. Right. And and, you know, capitalizing on the Frozen success, but at the same time, they're also putting more of the spotlight on her. Um, but regardless, I mean, I'm never going to say less Idina Menzel. I'm happy that she did get more screen time. She did get another song. And um, it was almost really jarring to see her animated like that because they do it at the end of Enchanted. And obviously we have her voicing Elsa, but Elsa looks nothing like Idina. So to see this Disney character, this 2D Disney character with the cheekbones and the lips and everything, it was a little jarring. But um, again, I, I like that they have they gave her more time. Maya Rudolph plays Malvina. I thought Maya Rudolph did a really good job in this role. Um I've, I've liked her since Saturday Night Live. Uh, I thought that she was a good addition to the cast. I think that she did a good job, but all in all, I think the character was a bit of a letdown. I feel like there was so much more they could have done with this character. I disagree. I think that they did just enough because it's not like she was a big bad and Giselle was a henchman. You had to strike a balance because both of them were the villains in this film. Uh, and I like that they call that out. They have a whole number about it, which we're going to talk about the music momentarily. Um, so I think that there was just enough of her. Uh, and I love Maya Rudolph and anything, um, but I think she handled this really well. Um, I definitely bought her as as an evil queen. Um, I I love, I thought she did a great job with the song. Um. Yeah, no, I thought she was great in this. Yvette Nicole Brown and Jama Mays play Rosaline and Ruby. They're foils, they're sidekicks, they're very good comic relief. Yvette Nicole Brown has now become one of these other actresses that Disney is just tapping into for, like, everything. Um, which is good, because I like her. I think she's very funny. Um, But I, I like the two of them together. They were just enough. You could have very easily gone over the line and did too much with them or you know beat a dead horse with it they were just enough um i agree and i don't i like both actresses a lot uh i think that they did a great job but i don't like what they did with these characters because Again, this is where you lose the parody and it starts to feel like a ripoff. You could have done something else with them rather than just have them descend into the ugly stepsisters. Fair enough. All right, let's start talking about the music. Alan Menken's back, right? Let's start talking about the music here. This was a dream come true that Idina got to sing Alan Menken. Even More Enchanted is the first song in the film and it seems straight out of the first one. Um, I said it before, breaking in and out of song doesn't get old, you know, in the real world. But this feels something that is completely linear from the first film to the second film. Yeah, I think that was a really smart choice to give us something familiar considering how much else is about to change. Because, again, that has to do with this not being a straight parody because it's a sequel. Um but I like the song. I mean, is it as good as something as like a how do you know? No, absolutely no. not. Because they're they're not 
you know, obviously Central Park lends to that because there's just so many people looking at her like she's out of her mind. Um, and here it's just a couple of people that are working on the house. Um, but it's still a great number for Giselle. Uh, it's and it really works for the transition. The Magic of Andalasia. It's a fun song, but I feel like this was just a means of getting Edward and Nancy to sing because they're more or less singing the instruction manual for the wand. I don't mind it, though, and I'm glad that they sort of gave them a duet because James Marsden is such an Idina fan. Um, they did an interview, I want to say it was on Jimmy Fallon, uh, where he would try to get Idina to sing A Whole New World and, and do all these classic Disney duets. So I'm glad he at least got to sing with her in some capacity. Fairy tale life. I think that this is a great vehicle for the use of the wand, but it continues to distract me that as she's singing this song, Pip just shows up out of nowhere in the well. It. The song works, but I feel like them just bringing him in in the middle of the song without any rhyme or reason is just a distraction. I agree with you on Pip. I think it's such a great I Want song, though, because it's setting up, you know, it, you don't really need the character development. We've done that already. Um, but it's setting up Giselle's new goals. Um, and I, I think it's also a great showcase for Amy Adams because it still gives her a big moment and those really big notes, even though you have Idina and you know that she's going to have the powerhouse ballad, um, they still gave Amy a moment to really shine without having to do a spoofy song. Yeah, perfect. I like this song for our new Morgan, Miss Baldacino. It's a good song for her. Um it works to set the table for everything that's going to happen at the festival. And it does feel like something you would have heard in a classic Disney fairy tale. Considering we're back in the market yet again, I do really like this number. Um, I think it's a fun song. I think uh, it's performed really, really well. The only thing that I'm bumping on um, is the... Ariel parody moment uh, where she walks up the fruit carts and then the water splashes behind her. We know that they drove up the Hudson River to get to Monroeville. Would it have been that hard for Morgan to walk through the market down a path through like a little forest, which she sort of does in this number anyway, to get out to a beach setting if we were going to give her that moment? I would have much rather them... Uh, done done a parody of either Belle or Jasmine or another princess. I mean, this was obviously so recognizable. It's unmistakable that it's the Little Mermaid, but it's just so jarring in this setting. The, the water comes up out of nowhere. I don't yeah. think it would have taken that much to get her to a beach. Badder. This is by far the best song in the film, and it is not even close. Fight me on it, yo. I'm I'm actually not going to. Um, it might sound crazy to say this is the best song in the movie and it's not Idina's. These two slay. It is such a great number. It's such a great song. It's great for the characters. It's great for Amy Adams and Maya Rudolph. Um, 
And really kudos on the editing here because it starts as a duet and then in scene they go to two different places, but they still manage to match it up where I don't feel like I'm watching Amy Adams and hearing Maya Rudolph off screen. Uh, it The whole number just absolutely slaps. This is the only song in the film that when I compare it to anything from the original, it's the only one that I think you could pit against anything in the original. Um, not that these songs aren't good, but the original is just so flawless that this is the only one that I think stands up to any of the songs in the first film. That's what I think. I think Love Power holds its own. Love Power, it's a nice solo song for Idina because you were you had to get her a solo song. I, I don't love it. It it sounds like they needed a solo song for Idina Menzel, and she sings it beautifully, but it sounds like they're trying to get the radio single out of it. And spoiler alert, they did release it as a single. No, I definitely agree with you on that. And I think there's two things. We're used to hearing the very big powerhouse notes from Elsa. So they're they're going to have to continue that here otherwise you're going to be like you gave her a song and you didn't let her do what you hire Idina Menzel to do and I also think part of that is that you do have Alan Menken composing for her I'm sure that he wanted to write to her voice and you know be able to work with an artist like this and utilize what you know that she can do. Alan Menken's not going to squander his opportunity working with Idina here. Um, but yeah, no, I definitely agree with you on the radio single issue. The other thing that I really don't love about it, and I, I don't want to critique it too hard because it's an Idina song, but objectively, um, I never like when songs do things like this and they are so specific to the film. It's why I don't recognize we don't talk about Bruno as one of the greatest songs in the Disney canon because it is so specific to Encanto and that scene. Um, the, the lyrics say Morgan. Nancy is speaking to Morgan in song and I, I really don't like that they put the name in there like that. And to me, that would also make it even more difficult to transition to the radio single. You kind of have to keep it um, much like Let It Go. It has to speak to a broader audience, and you have to be able to appreciate the song and understand what it's about without having watched the film. It has to be more evergreen. Exactly. All right, final, final thoughts on Disenchanted. Um... I mean, I hate to sound like a broken record, but I feel like the biggest strike against this film is that it is not a parody the way that the first one was. Um, you you lose the humor in the songs. You lose the humor uh, in, in all of the cameos that they yeah. threw in. That was a big thing that was missing for me, too. We didn't see... And I mean, that that's very specific to Eagle Eye Disney fans picking out your Jody Benson's and your uh, Judy Coons and Paige O'Hara. Um, that was that was what made the first one fun, right? But it also had to do with 
enchanted being a spoof and you lost all of that. The only person that got a cameo in this one was Adam Shankman, the director, in one of the many, many market scenes. Um, But despite those things, even though it lost so much of what makes the first one amazing... I did really enjoy this. Um, I liked revisiting these characters again. I like that they did flip the script and uh, they took it to the suburbs. I think that worked really well. Um, I liked the addition of Maya Rudolph's character. And um, I do give it credit for bridging the story and having it a continuation of like, what what a real family would be facing as you as kids are growing older now that you have a teenager and you do need more space um that that all worked i thought that was all really cohesive so i definitely don't love disenchanted the way that i do enchanted because it's near perfect but by no means does that mean that i disliked this one i still enjoyed it i'll still definitely watch it again but probably I don't think I'll be re-watching it as much as I would go back for Enchanted. Yeah, I think this was good, not great. Um, for all of the reasons that I've gone on over and over again, mentioning the missed opportunities for all of the, you know, for, for everything that you just said about, it loses its charm as it loses its sense of parody. It's a miss, but what I give it credit for is it is a straight continuation of the original film, and this film does not feel out of place. It does feel like a natural transition in the story. With that being said, there is such thing as too much of a good thing, and I do not want to see a third. Um, I think that, I hate to say it, I think you've milked this franchise for as much as you could, and to do another one at that point... I just don't see where you could go with it where it just gets played out. I agree. But we want to know what you have to say about Disenchanted. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio, or you can email us monorealradio at gmail.com. News of the week is coming up, but first, a quick break. Hey, guys. My name is Mike. I listen to Jackie and Sean's podcast every week on my commute into work. So I reached out to Jackie, and she helped me put together the perfect getaway. I did a four-night Disney cruise ship, and she was able to answer every question that I threw at her. She put together the perfect dates and an insurance plan that made the whole experience stress-free. She was able to help me with little tips and tricks, like you can get a Mickey Mouse bar delivered to you any time of the day. And I think that was a mistake because now I put about 10, 15 pounds on. I'll definitely be using Jackie again in the future. Thanks for everything. So if you would like to make your triumphant return to Bob Iger's Walt Disney World, I would love to help you plan your trip. You can get in touch with me through any of our social media outlets at Monoreal Radio on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email me directly at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at MagicalVacationPlanner.com. Hi, this is Kelly from Carmen Kismet, your official Monorail news sponsor, and I am very excited to throw it over to Sean and Jackie to talk all about the Disney news. But before I do that, I want to make sure that I share with you guys where you can check out all of my Disney inspired art at karmaandkismetdesigns.com. Hey, don't forget that listeners of the show get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout to see everything that Kelly has to offer. It is online at karmaandkismetdesigns.com. That's karma, the letter N, kismetdesigns.com. She's got a ton of Christmas prints, Christmas cards, uh, little recipe cards that are really cute so you can exchange your Christmas cookie recipes. Definitely check out Kelly's stuff. Talking about Bob Iger World, 
and Bob Iger land at this point. <laughs> no shade thrown at Walt Disney, of course, but Bob Iger is the toast of the town and the talk of the town right now. We do finally have a closing date for Splash Mountain. Yes, closing on January 23rd, so your last day to ride is the 22nd. We may have to try and get there and get you on Splash Mountain one more time. I'll I'll do one more time, sure. We're going to have to figure that out. But it will go down until 2024 at the earliest because Disney can't stick to a timeline when it comes to construction and refurbs. Um, 2024 at a minimum. It wouldn't surprise me if it were down until 2025. What I'm very surprised at, though, is that, I mean, obviously there's a schedule and a timeline that they're trying to stick to. I'm surprised, though, they're not waiting until Tron is open to close down another huge attraction. Yeah. And the fact that they would still close it down while technically still in the 50th anniversary stage of the park. At least, you know, here on the East Coast, that is. Right, because that's supposed to continue until April. Yeah. Um, And then Tron would be opening in May, so it's a much easier transition as far as the crowds go. For sure. We want to know if you are coming down or heading out to California to go on Splash Mountain one more time. Let us know, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook at Monoreal Radio, or you can email us, monorealradio at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for joining us this and every week on Monoreal Radio. Don't forget to follow us on that social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Monoreal Radio. You can also like, subscribe, and rate us on Verbal or your podcast platform of choice. And for links to everything related to the show, it is going to be online at monorealradio.com. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.